Welcome to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast with Ruth Haley Barton. In this season of the podcast, Ruth invites leaders with diverse callings and expertise to dialogue and explore how spiritual transformation intersects with some of the most significant topics of our time. Welcome, friends. As we draw this particular season of our podcast to a close, the Ruth and Friends season, I have a special treat for you today, although I, I know I'm probably going to want to do one of these seasons again. I've had such a good time talking to my friends about different significant and important aspects of the spiritual transformation journey. But as we bring this particular season to a close, I'm really pleased to offer you a very special treat. And it is a recorded conversation between myself and my mentor and teacher and friend, Dr. Bob Mulholland. It was recorded in March of 2015 as a video, and Dr. Mulholland was with us teaching his content on spiritual transformation for the sake of others in our Transforming Community experience. He had been diagnosed with cancer. Um, he was very ill and close to death, but he rallied one more time to come and to give us this content that was unpublished and fresh for us here in the Transforming Center. And in the context of that retreat, we also asked if we could record an interview with, with him, which he agreed to do. And so today we want to offer you the audio version of this interview. Um, it was a conversation that was intimate. It was tender in places. He shared openly about his conversion experience, which I had never heard before. He also allowed me to ask him questions about his journey with cancer and what uh, he was experiencing with God in that journey. This conversation is friendly because it's between two friends. It's also theologically rich and deep. And so I'm very pleased to be able to offer you this today, not only as the conclusion of this season of the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast, but also as a teaser for what's coming next. Because in our next season of the podcast, Steve Weens is going to rejoin me, and we are going to take a journey through Bob Mulholland's book, Invitation to a Journey, A Roadmap for Spiritual Formation. As many of you know, this is a seminal text for us here in the Transforming Center. It's an assigned text, and it's also my go-to text for anyone who asks if they could seek more understanding about the journey of spiritual transformation. So I hope you can sit back and enjoy this conversation between two friends um, as a way of honoring him and his role in the unfolding of the Transforming Center and also as a way to point towards our next season. Um, Invitation to a Journey was his seminal text that was published in 1993. And then in 2016, InterVarsity Press invited us to pick it up and to re-release an expanded version that now includes a new forward for myself, as well as practices and reflection questions to help you fully engage this text. So we'll have information about how you can get that book in the show notes. But for now, I just hope you enjoy this conversation between two friends. Well, Bob, it's really good to be with you today and to be able to talk about a shared passion that we have, which is our passion for spiritual formation. And you've been my teacher for a long time, all the way back to seminary days over 20 years ago. Uh, we were introduced to the book, Invitation to a Journey, and this is my copy from 20 years mm -hmm. ago. And I noticed that it was published in 1993, and I received it and purchased it in 1994, and then mm -hmm. you signed it for me in 2001. So I've had a long journey with this mm -hmm. book, and that was my first introduction mm -hmm. to you as a teacher. And then eventually, when we founded the Transforming Center, we invited you to be our teacher as well. And so you teach us through your writings. We study Invitation to a Journey. We study Shaped by the Word. And we study the deeper journey. And then you come and teach for us on retreat. And so we're just so pleased to be taught by you in your writings and in your, with your presence with us. And so today we get to talk a little bit about some of the aspects of spiritual formation and just kind of dig in a little bit. And I wanted to start with the definition that you put forth about spiritual formation. In your book, Invitation to a Journey, you define spiritual formation as the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. And that definition has become widely used. I think it's one of the most used definitions of spiritual formation, and it works really well. It um, actually, I think, elevates it uh, to its theological significance and also gives us a great deal of clarity and so I wanted to ask you, how did you come to that definition? What was the process by which you clarified that definition so that you could bring it to the rest of us? Well, I, I, 
it really started with uh, the preparation for Invitation to Journey, mm -hmm. but I didn't plan to write that book. Mm -hmm. uh, I was asked to do a retreat for uh, the, both the elders and the deacons of the uh, Virginia Conference, the Methodist Church, which is a huge group. And uh, the bishop asked me if I would come and do four sessions. Well, what do you do four sessions on? So I just began to you know, ruminate and uh, try to figure out, well, what, what would be best? And I, since spiritual formation was pretty new in those yes. days, and I presumed that probably most of this group, that would be alien language for them. So that it would be a good idea to try to find a nice, concise definition of spiritual formation that they could remember. And uh, so that's what, it, that's what I came up with. All right. Well, it works. It yeah. works. Yeah. So you know that I have in, um, expanded on the definition just a mm -hmm. little bit, which is a liberty that I've taken, and I wanted to ask you about that. Mm -hmm. So the way I talk about spiritual formation is to use your definition and then to expand on it a little bit by saying that <coughs> spiritual formation is the process by which we are formed in Christ for the glory of God, for the abundance of our own lives, and for the sake of others. And what strikes me is that a transforming individual, someone who's becoming a transformed person, actually glorifies God before they do anything. Um, it glorifies God just like a beautiful tree glorifies God by being mm -hmm. a beautiful tree. Mm -hmm. A human being who's being transformed into the image of Christ glorifies God just by being that human mm -hmm. being, mm -hmm. the best that they can be. And then that there's the promise of the abundance of our own lives, that it's good for us to be transformed mm -hmm. into the presence of Christ, and then it is also for the sake of others. So I wanted to ask you, how do you feel about the fact that I've sort of... Um, nuanced the definition or expanded it just a little bit? I don't have any problem with mm -hmm. that. I mean, uh, people have tweaked it, mm -hmm. you know, in many ways. I didn't put it out there to be something copyrighted mm -hmm. that nobody else could use except in that form. Uh, you know, it was just an offering to the world. Mm -hmm. and uh, So, no, I have no problem with that. Uh, and I think I pro probably, um, what you've been doing in the Transforming Center, it, it's good to have those additions. I mean, those additions are integral in my understanding of what you know the simpler version is, but that would not be true for everybody. So I think those those things that you put in there uh, help to clarify what the definition is about and what we're what we're pointing at here. One of the things that you mentioned early on in the book is that transformation or formation is happening all the time, and Dallas Willard mentions that as well. That formation is going on all the time, and the only question is whether or not it's transformation. Or deformation. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself using the language of formation and transformation somewhat interchangeably? Do you use the language of transformation as well as formation? Yeah, yeah I, I use them both. Mm -hmm. uh, they, I guess they're not really interchangeable, but uh, they, they're very closely related. And, uh, and I think the point that I've, I've been trying to make is to, to help people awaken to the fact that everybody is on a spiritual journey. You know, it's not just those of us that are intentional about our spiritual journey and, you know, the, like the Transforming Center and things like that, but every human being is on a spiritual journey, which is either taking them to greater integration and wholeness in the image of Christ or greater disintegration and brokenness. And at the same time, there is a level of intentionality that one can bring. There can be a point in one's mm -hmm. life where one says, I want to bring more intentionality mm -hmm. to my journey. Mm -hmm. so that it is a process of transformation and not deformation, mm -hmm. and so that I can be even more intentional about opening to the transforming presence of Christ. Mm -hmm. So would you say that there is something good about bringing some intention to it? Eventually? Oh, I think, I think there has to be intention mm -hmm. because uh, the spiritual journey is really a relationship with God, mm -hmm. either positive or negative. You have a negative spiritual journey, you reject God or what have you, and in a positive spiritual journey, you're seeking to grow deeper and deeper into that loving relationship with God. And a relationship takes work. Yes. You know, you've got to be intentional in a relationship. And the uh, and same with a relationship with God. We must be very intentional about our desire to be in God and to let God be God in our life on God's terms. Amen. One of the things that I think you would do a particularly good job of articulating in your books is this issue of information grasping <coughs> and that information grasping, functionality, all those sorts of things can actually be obstacles to our spiritual journey. And of course, that presents a problem to us as Protestants in particular, <laughs> because we are information graspers. We tend to be very heady in our approach to God, and we love our dogmas, and we love our theology, and 
we love to prove that we can quote scripture and use scripture to prove text and all that sort of thing. What is the answer for us as Protestants? How do we get beyond our information grasping and our over emphasis on functionality and getting things done and saving the world and all that sort of thing that can actually keep us from being mm-hmm. open and receptive to the yeah. process of formation? Well, I think um, the, the, the crucial issue here is to, to recognize that the functionality dynamic, you know, focusing on what you do, um, really uh, truncates the nature of what it is to be human. You know, we, we, we kind of use this phrase a lot, we become human doings instead of human beings. And uh, I think one of the, one of the essential, um, I'd say first steps of understanding spiritual formation is to understand that we're not in a process of uh, substituting one set of behaviors for another set of behavior. We're in a process of deepening a living, dynamic relationship with God, out of which then our behaviors flow. And uh, of course, part of our problem is that we think that our relationship with God depends upon what our doing. And if we do the do's and don't the don'ts and that sort of stuff, you know, then God's going to be happy with us and we're going to heaven when we die. Well, that, that really is, is a travesty of what spiritual formation is all about. We're, we're seeking a relationship with God in which we find our own being, out of which then we become God's person through our doing. But the doing flows out of being, not the other way around. And for us as Protestants in particular, that's going to take some intentionality. It's going to take some mm-hmm. intentionality to discipline the parts of ourselves that are information grasping and utilitarian and, and functional in order to open yeah. ourselves to something that only God yeah. can bring about in our lives. Yeah. I think the, 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 the real serious problem, spiritual formation with the information grasping, is that it allows us to retain control. We grasp what we want, we leave the stuff we don't want, and uh, there, there's no real abandonment of oneself to God. And of course, you can't, you can't bring a relationship with God under your control. And that's very uncomfortable to us who we're control freaks. You know, we, we want to be in charge of all of this, and we can't be. So that's, that's a difficult step for people to come to. Yes, and I've sensed that that's one of the reasons why sometimes we struggle, or churches or particular groups of people might sometimes struggle to embrace the process of spiritual formation for that very reason, mm-hmm. that we don't want to give up control. We don't want to enter into something where we clearly don't have control and open ourselves up to mm-hmm. mystery. There's a resistance to open ourselves up to mystery. Yeah. And mystery is so much a part of the formation mm-hmm. process. Yes. So there are real challenges mm-hmm. to this process. Yeah, very much so. And so we've been so deeply ingrained in, in the information mode, you know, the information functional mode, that uh, it really is a radical paradigm shift for people to begin to realize what this really isn't the way it works, you know, that, that this is the way it works. Well, and it's true that, that each tradition has its strengths and its weaknesses, and mm-hmm. oftentimes our strengths become our weaknesses over time. So this is a particular strength, but also it can become a weakness over time for Protestants that mm-hmm. we don't know how to embrace mystery. We want to feel that we have it all figured out, whereas the Catholic tradition embraces mystery more easily, I think, mm-hmm. than the Protestant tradition. Mm-hmm. So this is a unique challenge for us Mm -hmm. on some level. Very much so. Yeah. Something else that I think is really valuable in your writing that I've really appreciated in Invitation to a Journey has to do with your holistic approach. And in fact, you have a chapter in your book called Holistic Spirituality. And one way in which that works itself out is that you make the statement that psychology is not a substitute for spirituality and spirituality is not a substitute for psychology. And in saying that, you're indicating that any effective approach to spiritual formation has to take into account all aspects of the person, particularly including psychology Mm -hmm. and spirituality. Mm -hmm. So when you were writing this, which would have been 1993, which was quite a number of years ago now, there was real suspicion in the Christian community about psychology. And in fact, people would have thought that the two, you know, psychology and Christianity and spirituality don't even go together. How did you come to this knowing that there had to be a holistic approach in the midst of a religious culture where that might not have even been acceptable. And for some people, it was even frightening to think Mm -hmm. about opening up to psychological Mm -hmm. insight. How did you come to that integration, which is so important, I think? Well, I think just realizing that that there are dynamics of dysfunction in persons that need need attention, Mm -hmm. and you're not going to solve them by just laying spirituality on them. 
you know, there, there are dysfunctional dynamics deep within them caused by, you know, aspects of their upbringing or what have you. Um, you know, those, those have to be dealt with if we're going to ever be holistic in our spirituality. But just adding more spiritual practices is not going to do that. And, and I think that was one of the dangers is that the people thought, well, all you got to do is be more spiritual and they'll take care of that. Well, it doesn't take care of that because it, it does it well, prim, prim, primarily because spirituality is misunderstood, you know, sort of as an add-on. And uh, so that, that's basically where my thinking came from on that. And uh, I was hi- helped a lot by the Myers-Briggs. That, that's, just, that's one way that the Enneagram would be another way to deal with this, but to, to deal with the, the, the complexity of who we are as human beings. And, and I think that, uh, especially back in those days, the, the idea of the spiritual life was a pretty simplistic understanding. Uh, and it really didn't deal with the complexity of what it is to be human. Yes, the victorious Christian living, those those sorts of teachings where mm-hmm. all you had to do was name it and claim it, yeah, you know, yeah. and you'd be mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's very respectful. You know, you talked about the complexity of the human situation. And I think that an approach that's integrative like that is also more respectful of the of the complexity mm-hmm. of, of the human condition and how God has created us. In fact, you know, my training is in spiritual direction, and one of the things that I think can be so dangerous is when we slap a spiritual answer on something that's really psychological in nature, mm-hmm. or we put, um, you know, we talk about psychology when there's something deeply spiritual going on. Mm-hmm. And one of the examples of that could be the spiritual stage of the dark night of the soul. If a psychologist wasn't trained to recognize the spiritual stage of the dark night of the soul, they could try to medicate it or mm-hmm. slap um, a psychological answer on it when really something deeply spiritual is going on that needs to unfold. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's actual danger in not understanding the difference between what needs to be dealt with from a psychological perspective and what needs to be dealt with from a spiritual perspective. And I'm really grateful for the way that you've articulated that well, in Invitation you. to a Journey. Thank you. The other thing that I love in your book uh, that's highly integrative uh, as it relates to holistic spirituality, is the work that you did on the Myers-Briggs, which is quite unique. And one of the things that I thought was so helpful is that it utilized the Myers-Briggs in a slightly different way. Oftentimes, Myers-Briggs would be used to uh, foster teamwork, to help us understand each other. The Myers-Briggs also helps people to focus on their strengths, I think, and to accept their strengths, which is a really mm-hmm. good thing. But you took it a little bit further and talked about formation as being about becoming more whole and that part of how that can happen is to look at the Myers-Briggs to look through that lens and to see that we have strengths that are that are overdeveloped in some cases Mm -hmm. and then there's the shadow side that's the undernourished Mm -hmm. shadow side and up until I read your book I thought that the shadow side was always about sin (laughs) which sometimes it is Mm -hmm. but I loved what you did with the shadow where you talked about it being the undernourished underdeveloped part of yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that that approach and how you've talked about the shadow side as being the undernourished side of the personality. Yeah, that, uh, you know, we, we have our uh, temperament type that this is what we prefer. Uh, one of the dangers of the Myers-Briggs is people finding out, you know, that they're an INTJ or what have you, oh, I'm locked into this, and uh, which certainly is not the way it is. And the important part for spirituality is that that shadow side has to be nurtured. If it's not nurtured holistically, it is going to trip up any holistic spirituality on you know, the, the, your, your strengths. So you, you've got to have those both going together. And uh, we, we, there's a tendency, I think, or there was a tendency to sort of ignore the shadow side, which was a very big mistake because. The illustration I often use is, I, I, I say to people, to my audience, you know, how many of you are right-handed? And, you know, they're raising, how many of you are left-handed? Of course, what amuses me is when left-handed people raise their right hand in answer to the question. <laughs> but uh, I said, now, since, since you're right-handed, you won't mind if I cut off your left arm, right? Well, of course. You know, I, I need them both. Well, that's the way to, to think of the Myers-Briggs. We need them both. And they interact. There are times when, you know, I'm, I'm an introvert, but there are times when, I, in order to be... What God wants me to be, I have to become an expert. Now, that's not easy for me because my preference is introversion. But you've got to learn how to balance. And of course, holistic spirituality and holistic human existence isn't becoming perfectly balanced between introvert and extrovert. It, it's knowing and being able to move 
to either side of that as the situation calls for and to be God's person, whatever that is. I often talk about my life as, as an introvert living in a very extroverted life. Mm. Um, and so people might not even know sometimes that I'm an introvert and mm -hmm. what it takes for me to show up and, and, mm -hmm. yeah. and do what I do. And yet I love the idea that part of moving towards wholeness is that we're able to access whichever part of the personality, whichever part of the spectrum is most needed in a given mm -hmm. moment. The mm -hmm. ability to, to access both mm -hmm. is really a picture of mature Christian spirituality. Right. And I think that's so helpful. And um, yes, mm -hmm. there is the reality of sin, and I do want to talk about sin. But what I found so refreshing in your book was that talking about the undernourished shadow side actually removes some of the shame of talking about what the spiritual journey is. It's not always just about rooting out sin. Mm -hmm. It's all it's more positive than that. It's mm -hmm. about becoming a more well-rounded, uh, fully orbed person. And I think I think that's very inspiring, mm -hmm. and people respond very well to that. Mm -hmm. So we have the undernourished shadow side that we talk about, which um, I think that's a great way because it, it eliminates some of the shame that can go along with looking at those things. But you do talk about sin. You talk about besetting sin. You talk about failure, um, the, the habitual failures of our spiritual journey. I, I think that's a wonderful piece of language. So how do you identify sin? How do you talk about sin and define sin? Well, uh, I, I try to make a distinction between sin in the singular and sins in the plural. Uh, which, in a sense, is sort of a false distinction, but that's that's what people understand. When, when you say sin to a person, the first thing that comes to their mind is this particular behavior or attitude or what have you. And um, Whereas in reality, those are simply symptoms of sin. Sin, in its essence, is playing God in our life. It's refusing to allow God to be God on God's terms. Then out of that flow all of these behaviors that you know, in various ways are dehumanizing and destructive. Uh, they are sins in that sense. But we spend so much of our time, I think, um, dealing with the symptoms that we never get to the cause. You know, you, well, you're a Christian, you don't do this, you don't do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. Never really dealing with the underlying reality of, of a, an aberrant relationship with God that manifests itself in those behaviors. So how have you experienced this process in your life, uh, moving towards a holistic approach, um, dealing with the shadow side of your personality, but also dealing with besetting sins and the habitual failures of the spiritual life? How has that unfolded in your own journey? These are really natural parts of the process. Because the, one of the essential dynamics of this process is allowing God to get your focus on those things where you have to surrender, where you have to yield to God. Um, with, you know, with what you call habitual sins, the, these usually emerge out of deeply ingrained perspectives or values or behaviors that just have been there forever, practically, you know, in your life. Um, and not, it's not that God can't work a miracle of grace and deliver you from that, but I think more often than not, God works in the process to gradually unpack dynamics of what, whatever that is to help us see in ourselves what the issue is and to offer ourselves to God for God's transforming grace. Do you have a specific illustration you'd be willing to share from your own life? Oh, golly. <laughs> Put a little flesh on the bones? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, prepared for that one <laughs> yeah like yeah I, I, you know i i really it's, it's hard to it's hard to pick out one thing like that um i guess probably for me it was was coming to the awareness of the mystical dimension of the faith you know i mean i i was as uh, functionally oriented as anybody could be you know even in the early stages of my, of my spiritual journey and uh gradually Coming, coming aware of the fact that, that this is not the essence of the spiritual journey. That there is that much deeper reality of the relationship with God that, that has to be nurtured. And um, so, you know, I began many years ago uh, seeking, you know, disciplines that would nurture that, you know, contemplative prayer and things like that that would nurture that relationship. That's 
perfect because that takes me to the next thing I'd like to ask you about, and that is your journey as an academic. Um, your journey is as an academic. You're a New Testament scholar. And a lot of times there's a stereotype that those kind of people don't do formation. You know, that they're stuck in their heads and all they can do is think really hard about stuff. And we've all known people who are extremely intelligent and very learned and have all sorts of advanced degrees. And they don't know how to love people. They don't know how to be kind, all of those sorts of things. And so I've been so curious about your journey um, as an academic to a place of experiencing and then articulating so effectively the process of transformation, which is fundamentally experiential. It has to happen at an experiential level where one opens oneself up to being acted upon by mm -hmm. God and mm -hmm. to have it happen in the cells, the very cells of your being. And so I'm very interested in your journey. When was the point where you realized as a scholar and as an academic that you wanted to move into this arena of formation, both the experience of it, but then eventually the teaching and the articulation and the writing about it? Well, it, it's interesting. The, my, my conversion experience um, was a very mystical experience, um, a very relational experience. It wasn't a head trip. Um, and then I, when I went to the Naval Academy, I got into a Christian fellowship that nurtured me in the early stages of my faith. But it was nurturing that heart religion and not, not much in the head. It wasn't conjoining head and heart. And so... Um, when I got out and serving my time in the Navy and then uh, going to seminary, in seminary for the first time, I, I encountered people who really seemed to have it all together up here. And I didn't realize that not all of them had it all together down here. So, you know, I, I, I sort of went in the, in the head direction. And um, by, the time I, by the time I finished my doctorate, it was all in the head. There was no experiential reality at all. It was all head trip. And, uh, but then God in, in God's infinite grace uh, went around and kicked some of the props out of my security and my life, myself, my understanding of myself. Um, and so I just really began wrestling with what's going on here. And it was interesting. At that time, I, uh, my, our first son had been born. And after 10 years of marriage, which, you know, you get sort of used to one another after 10 years. And all of a sudden, here's this little creature that demands everything, you know, 124-7. And... Um, but I also uh, ruptured a disc in my back, so I had back surgery at that time. And while I was laid up, uh, I ran across Helmut Thielicke's, the first volume of his evangelical faith. And there, for the first time, I, I encountered someone that really seemed to have head and heart together. And um, that, that sort of led me into reading uh, John Wesley's writings, where his lifelong pursuit was to conjoin knowledge and vital piety. And, and I realized, well, that's, that's really what the spiritual life is all about. You know, you, when you're entering the spiritual life, you don't cut your head off. You know, they, you have to have both knowledge and vital piety. They have to be integrated together. And so since that time, that's been the nature of my journey, is trying to keep those things integrated. Sounds like a gift that God gave you a mystical <coughs> experience for your conversion, because you're obviously very intelligent and you've developed that aspect of yourself a great extent, but it sounds like that early conversion experience that was mystical actually showed you right off the bat that that's the level at which God works. Mm -hmm. What was that experience? Well, um, it's, it's a long story. <laughs> uh, ba basically, it was uh, through, through a series of events in my life, uh, realizing that, that I was hollow inside, that there was no center that, that held, that my, my life was a facade. And uh, I'd, I'd been turned off on Christianity years before. I mean, I knew there was nothing there. And so I, I began sort of a frantic search for something to, to fill that void, reading all, all other religions, philosophy, and things like that. But I was not able to find anything. And uh, so finally I decided if, if there was no, no meaning to my life, it wasn't worth living. So I decided suicide. I was sitting at home. Uh, Seeking to work up enough courage to go upstairs and put a shell in my rifle and put it through my head. And I noticed a little book in the, uh, the couch, which was right about over there. And, and I knew what it was when I saw it. It was uh, Ralph Spalding Cushman's Pocketbook of Faith. And the pastor of, of the church had given every graduate one of those. Well, I'd had a bad experience with the pastor. So when I saw who it was from, I just slung, slung it across the room and apparently fell down the couch and worked its way out at the opportune time. So I thought to myself, you know, I had enough sense to realize that the suicide is rather irreversible and that there's always tomorrow, 
that it won't, you know, I, I'm a, I was sure there was nothing in Christianity, but it wouldn't hurt to, to look. So I noticed a section in this little book called Faith in the Evening, and I said, okay, we'll, we'll give that a try. So I went to bed that night, I, I sat in my bed and started working through this section. It began with a poem, Christian was quite a poet, and the poem was something like, like this, just as flood tides fill every nook and cranny of the bay, so the, the, the presence, from them, the presence of God can fill my life. That got my attention, because I've been looking for something to fill this black hole. And then the next thing was, a, was an examine, where you, you know, a series of questions, you went back and looked over your day. Well, I sort of went back and looked over my life. Every one of those questions, I, I began to wonder whether Krishna had been following me around my whole life taking notes. Every one of those questions, to the heart, the first one, have I done anything today to hurt others? Well, my life was nothing but a pain to others, because I was so horribly self-centered. Others were just there, you know, to fulfill, fulfill my needs and my wants, my desires, and when I was through with them, I just, just discarded them. Every question was like that. And, and so, you know, I, then, then there's a prayer of confession. And I had not prayed since now I lay me down to sleep. You know, I, well, I got kneeled down beside my bed, so I got out and knelt down. I, just, I began reading this prayer. And as I began reading this prayer, I suddenly knew, in, Paul talks about, you know, knowing the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, there's no way to get your mind around what this experience was. It was a unitive experience, first of all. I have to tell it in pieces, but it was just all at once. I realized that, that there was a God, and that God was in that room. And at the same time, I realized that this presence, that I had no idea who God was or what God was like, that this presence was the answer to this emptiness within, but that unless I invited this presence, come in, nothing was going to happen. And so, not with my lips, but somewhere deep within, I just said yes, and experienced that presence just sort of flooding my being. So that, that was the mystical experience. And there have been times in my, in my Christian journey when uh, the inescapable reality of that experience has been the only thing that held me steady. So I, I could not deny what had happened there. And you, yeah, you can't go back. You can't no. not know what you know. You can't not experience what you've already experienced. Mm -hmm. Well, right. thanks be to God <laughs> uh, that he gave you that gift. I'd like to talk about your book, Shaped by the Word, because that's another book that we use. And one of the reasons that it's important, again, is that you highlight the issue of information grasping, but you highlight it specifically as it has to do with the way we approach Scripture. And, of course, Scriptures are so important to us as Protestants, but oftentimes in a quite heady sort of intellectual way. Mm -hmm. And so in your book, you talk about how to engage the scriptures in such a way that we're actually penetrated, shaped by the word, actually have an encounter with God in the word. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, just the challenges that we have with approaching scripture in a way that's truly life transforming? Well, I've, since, since the book, which was what, 30 some years ago, um, I have continue to work with the definition of what the nature of Scripture is. And at this point, I've come to this, that the Word, the Word that was God, the Word that was, the Word that was with God, the Word that was God, the Word that became flesh, mm -hmm. that the Word also became text to provide a place of transforming encounter with God so that the Word might become flesh in us for the sake of the world. And of course, you can see some of the overlays from my definition of spiritual formation. The, the, the problem uh, with scripture is, especially when you live in a text-based culture, um, where most of our reading is done informationally. We're, we're reading to gain some information about something so that we can you know, do something better, what have you. And so when we come to the scripture, you know, tendency is to just read it the same way we read everything else. And uh, now, of course, one aspect of that, it makes it safe, because you're in control. And, uh, and, and it's much more difficult to, to place yourself before Scripture, allowing God to encounter you, whatever way God desires to encounter you in that text. Um, and of course, to encounter you in ways that will be nurturing and transforming, lead you to wholeness in the image of Christ. So, uh, and, and it, you know, you, you, there's sort of a vacillation sometimes between the information and what I call the formational reading of Scripture, that we, we may enter into the formational reading. We really want to, to encounter God. We want God to encounter us. 
until it becomes too uncomfortable. And then we just switch over to the informational mode, you see, which puts us back in control of the text and it's safe. So what is the role or the power of scripture in our spiritual transformation? It is that it is one of the essential places of transforming encounter with God. When we let God, who is in, how to say that, in the text doesn't really work, but the, the, the text is a means of God's grace to encounter us, to, tra to challenge us, to probe those areas of our life that are not what they ought to be. How in the world did we get so far from the original intent and purpose for Scripture? How did it become a place of intellectual striving and hard work and proof texting and dogma and um, almost utilizing Scripture sometimes to filter God out of our very experience? How has this happened, both in, in our culture but also in our religious tradition? Mm -hmm. um, that's a good question. I, I think that part of it, part of the answer to that is our in, innate ability to want to retain control even of our relationship with God. And, and of course, in a text-based culture like ours, where you basically read for information, not for formation, um, is, is so very easy just to keep the scripture safe by reading it that way. Um, I, I really think it's, uh, what has caused this is, is the avoidance of God. If we can read the text information so we know about God, but not know God. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, the scholarship, biblical scholarship in the past two, three hundred years, uh, has tended to go in that direction. And in, in one respect, biblical scholarship, you know, two, three hundred years ago, was a reaction to very poor and inadequate understanding of Scripture. Where, where scripture was taken out of context, uh, it just became a proof text to support you know, the institution, what have you. And, and so there, there certainly was a legitimate cause in, in biblical interpretation and biblical studies to, to work against that grain, which had been there like for 1,500 years, you know. Um, but it's sort of like the pendulum, you know, you're way over here, and instead of coming back to, to a holistic center, you go all the way over here. Or it just becomes a human document like any other, be studied like a human document like any other, be understood in the context of its original culture, the language, and all of that, um, which can effectively filter out an encounter with God. So, what are the practices that you would suggest for people who really do who really do want to encounter God in Scripture in a way that's transforming for them? Are there is there a practice or two that you would say these are really excellent practices for? encountering God in Scripture in a way that transforms us? Well, one of the most ancient methods is called Lexio Divina, spiritual reading. Um, and my, my latest book was on that, uh, The Way of Scripture, trying to bring this, this ancient discipline and practice to be relevant for the 21st century. Uh, and it, it is uh, you know, an, an excellent, uh, it's a time-tested method. And... Uh, so, you know, there's, there's four basic parts. Lexio is just the reading, but it's not just reading. It's, it's sort of sinking down into the text, immersing yourself in a, you know, a small portion of the text. And, and then um, the, ne the next phase is uh, meditatio, which doesn't mean meditation. It means wrestling with what, what the encounter has been. What, you know, how has God spoken to you here? And um, one, of the, one of the ways I've suggested is uh, after you have really immersed yourself in the passage, just ask the question. What is God saying to me here? And, and listen for the response. And then the, the third step is, is uh, oratio, prayer. But it's a very special kind of prayer. It's, it's your response to what God has said to you. And then the final one is contemplatio, and that's where you just you know, sink down into that centeredness uh, and let God be whatever God wants to be and do whatever God wants to do out of that encounter. So something like that is what I think is what's necessary. And what's so exciting about that way of being with Scripture, to, to get back to your um, discussion about information grasping and our cognitive filters and all the ways we filter God out, is that Lexio Divina has a way of kind of skirting or penetrating through the cognitive filters because mm -hmm. God, there's space for God to work. 
mm-hmm. in that practice as opposed to us mm-hmm. coming just with our agenda. Yeah. So there's a fifth move that um, I, you know, people are, have talked about since uh, the first four that have been identified, and that's incarnatio, which goes also very well with what you said mm-hmm. earlier on about the fact that we can really enflesh the word. Mm-hmm. We can become the word as well. We can become a word of God too, mm-hmm. um, which yeah. um, I love that idea mm-hmm. that we can actually incarnate the word in some fresh way. Well, I've, I've added one on each end of the four. Mm-hmm. Beginning in silencio mm-hmm. is taking time to, to become still before the word. Uh, being focused on allowing God to encounter us in that word. You see, Lexio began in the monastic tradition where everybody was seeking God, so you didn't need that. But, you know, we come in off of our busy lives and our informational reading. We've got to switch gears. So, silencio is where you switch the gears. And then, as you said, after, you have incarnatio. Because whatever, in whatever way God has encountered you in that text, how is that going to play out in your life in the world? And that's when life gets really exciting, when, <laughs> when you begin to realize that you're not just reading scripture, but you're actually incarnating yeah. the word mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Now I'd like to talk about mm-hmm. your book, The Deeper Journey, which has to do with the false self and the journey to discovering the true self and living as a true self in God. How do you talk about the false self? How do you define the false self? Well, the, the simplest definition, it is a... Um, a radically self-referenced way of being. The way of being in the world where you are at the center of everything. So that your desires, your wants, your needs, etc., are what govern the way in which you handle the world around you. So, you know, total self-centeredness. And how does the journey unfold then? The, un- the journey from the false self to the true self in God. How does that journey unfold for a person? Uh, well, it has to begin with some kind of an awakening for the fact that the self they thought they were is not really the self that they're created to be. And that, the, that this is a construct of their own making, or, you know, and of course the, the culture abets that very much. Uh, you, you know, we sort of cobble together a, a self out of the material of the world around us and our experiences and that sort of thing, and presume that that's who we are. When in reality, that is not who we're, we are. That, that's, you might say it's like a facade. Um, that our, our true self is found only in God and, and awakening to, to that indwelling presence of God in our life where we find our true identity. Um, and that, that's, that's another one of those radical paradigm shifts because most, most people have been nurtured to find their identity in in interaction with that external world rather than the inner reality. And, and so to, to make that shift is, is really a major shift in, in people's lives. And often, more often than not, it's not something that happens like that. It's a, a dawning awareness that, hey, maybe, maybe there's more to what it is to be human than you know, what I've got here. And, uh, and then you know, they begin to search. So you're alluding to the stages of faith, the, the classic stages of the spiritual journey then that mm-hmm. begins with awakening and then moving to purgation. Can you say a little bit about the spiritual journey through the lens of the false true self? Because on some level we could talk about the spiritual journey as being the journey from the false self to, to living as our true self in God, correct? Mm-hmm. And the stages of faith or the stages of spiritual journeying actually describe what that journey is like. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I love in Invitation to a Journey is how you describe mm-hmm. the stages. Can you just yeah. give us those in a nutshell? Well, of course, awakening is, is the beginning. Mm-hmm. There, there must be an awakening to God at some level of one's being that challenges the status quo. Um, and then the, the classical journey, the, the next stage is, is purgation, which is coming to grips with those things in our life that are inconsistent with our wholeness in the image of God. Um, and that, of course, becomes quite a process. Um, then the, 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 you know, the third stage, it's been a long time since I've thought about this. Uh, illumination? Uh, illumination, yeah. Third stage is illumination, where you, you begin, there, there begins in your life a dawning awareness of this whole new reality of life in God. And, uh, and, and at that point, you, you become 
you begin to become much more uh, outwardly focused out of that centeredness. You know, it's not a case of works righteousness. You, because of that deep centeredness in God, you find yourself being thrust out into the world out of that centeredness to be God's person in that world. And of course, the final stage is union, loving union, um, which for most people in, in the spiritual tradition uh, is, is an on-again, off-again kind of thing. It's not, you don't achieve this state and you just, you know, you're sitting there perfect for the rest of your life. Uh, it is those grace moments, and we, we cannot create the union. It, it is graced to us by God, and only by God. And uh, one of the dangers is, if you have that kind of experience, is trying to replicate it, to hold on to it, you know, to, to enshrine it so that you can, can have, and of course that, that is very detrimental to your ongoing growth. You just rejoice and continue the process like the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration where they wanted to build a tent. Exactly. And just they all wanted, stay there in they, that place wanted, of intimacy. Right, they wanted to build three booths, right. one for Jesus, That's one right. for Moses, one for Elijah. You've got to capture That's this right. thing and get control of it, you know. That's right. And, and you can't. Yeah. Well, that takes us, I think, very nicely to this um, tension that you're very good at talking about. You talk about the tension, the very real <laughs> tension between attention to our personal spiritual journeys and the world in which our spirituality needs to be lived out. And in fact, you talk about the fact that if we don't hold these things in a creative tension, sometimes we get into polarity thinking where we think about our personal journey and our life in the world as being two very different things and we mm -hmm. experience them as a polarity rather than being willing to live them in creative tension, that there's real risk of uh, refusing to live those two aspects of our lives in creative mm -hmm. tension. What are the risks when we don't live our personal spirituality together with our life in the world? Well, the, there's, there's two, two basic risks. One is that your understanding of spirituality will dominate and, and you just become you know, totally separated from life and the world. You just become this spiritual person. Um, the other is that you focus in on you know, being God's person in the world and lose sight of the deep centeredness out of which that must emerge. So if you don't have those two together, then yeah, you're, you're always going to have problems. And you're going to have people that you know are uh, focused on you know, social action, or whatever term you want to use, and those who are focused on spirituality. And uh, either 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 of those by itself is really a, a, a false construct. Experience. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, because the more we allow God to draw us into that relationship of loving union with Him, the more we find ourselves concern for others out there, for the world out there. And that, I mean, if you look at the great mystics of our tradition, they were the great reformers. You know, they were the people that, that counseled popes and kings and held them to accountability. And, you know, and of course, sometimes they got in a lot of trouble, but they're still, you know, they, they, they weren't off in a, a convent or a monastery somewhere, you know, just all, all the time praying all day long uh, because their, their deepening life with God just thrust them out into that world to be God's person in that world. And one of the ways that you resolve the tension in a teaching that you've been developing more recently that's not even published yet is the idea of <laughs> cruciformity mm -hmm. and the fact that as Christ is formed in us, then we are called to live in a cruciform way in the world. How does the idea of cruciformity resolve that tension or contribute to the resolution of that tension? Oh, well, I think because of the nature of the world, uh, when, when we are the person God wants us to be, there are those in the world who are not going to be happy with that. Because a genuine Christian presence is a challenge to the perceptual framework, the value system, and the lifestyle of the world, which is self-centered. And, and so, especially those whose welfare, whose prestige, whose position, whose power depends on that structure, they become very sensitive to threats like this. And, and so you very well might, may find yourself crucified, and maybe literally or at least in, you know, marginalized, demeaned, discredited. Uh, and that's all part of cruciform love. And the idea being also that what gets formed in us, if we are indeed on a Christian journey of formation, that what gets formed in us is that kind of love, not just love that's sentimental and sloppy, but a love that really does demand something of us. 
Yeah, well, it's a love. The essence, the essence of this kind of love, God is cruciform love, is it is a radically other-referenced way of being. It is a non-self-reflective way of being. And, uh, and really, that's, that's the, you know, to allow God to bring us into, into that uh, arena, so to speak, is the, is the only way, really, to ultimately be God's person in the world. If it doesn't emerge out of that relationship, then it, it's not going to work. It's going to be facade. You know, the, the, the story Jesus tells at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people that appear to him on the judgment day, Lord, Lord, do we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many, many works in your name. He doesn't contradict them. He says, I never knew you. See, all of their good social acts, I mean, they were doing God things. You know, and all of that was not the outer manifestation of a life deeply engaged with God at the core. It was just facade. So you've got to have them both. Amen. <laughs> so I'd like to talk a little bit about leadership with you. I know that you were on, on, you were in the administration at Asbury, so you've had your experience there, 30 years of being in leadership at Asbury Seminary, and then now you're serving as a pastor in a small church in Maine. And what would you say is the nature of spiritual leadership? Well, spiritually, the, 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 the biblical passage that I focus in on that is in, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, where he, he states his purpose is to present everyone mature in Christ. That's a pretty simple way to think of Christian leadership. The purpose of Christian leadership is to present everyone mature in Christ. Now, of course, there's all sorts of spin-offs from that. Because if they are mature in Christ, especially, let's take pastors, if, if, they are, if you nurture the church to be mature in Christ, then they are going to be able to be the presence of Christ in the community in which they exist. Um, so I, I think spiritual leadership is basically that. Now, of course, it means constantly growing ever deeper in your own spirituality because you, you can't lead out of a head knowledge of spirituality. You, you've got to lead out of a heart knowledge. And um, because, you know, I, I think people in, innately sense that if it's all up here, you know, but if they innately sense this is who you are, this is coming out of your own journey, um, there's a lot more receptivity and response. What about discernment? Do you see discernment as being a part of spiritual leadership? Definitely, yeah. And um, not only individual discernment, but you know, group discernment as well. They, they, they have to be together. And, and even, I, I think, my perspective on this is that even individual uh, discernment should always have a check and balance with communal discernment. Um, so yes, to learning how to, how to be sensitive to what God is seeking to do with us, in us, through us, both as individuals and as communities of faith. And also the fact that there is so much need in the world that Jesus loved, it's impossible for any one of us to meet all the needs in the world, and so there is a need continually as individuals and as communities to discern what, what is my unique calling in, exactly. in response to the needs of the world, because exactly. I can't do it all. Right. So discernment can be a way of opening up to God's guidance about what he wants us to do specifically, exactly. rather than yeah. you know, killing ourselves trying to do everything right. all at once. Right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that probably pastors in any day and age would feel like the job of pastoring is difficult and, and challenging, but there are some unique challenges for pastors today that I'm really aware of. I, I'm a pastor's kid, and so I was raised in that environment, and I know what pastoring was like 30 and 40 years ago. And some of the changes that I've seen is that, number one, my dad's responsibilities were much simpler way back then than they seem to be today. His pastoral responsibilities were to preach on Sundays, to um, give a Wednesday night Bible study, to meet with the elders, to go and visit the sick and maybe mm -hmm. perform the weddings and the funerals. Mm -hmm. And that was enough. I mean, that's a full-time job right there. Mm -hmm. But these days, the challenges are even greater. They, uh, pastors are expected to be fundraisers. They're expected to communicate effectively to large crowds. Plus, they're expected to relate well interpersonally. They're expected to be very innovative, to know something about production and programming. I mean, the expectations just go on and on for pastors today. And then, of course, we live in a post-Christian society where um, it's no longer assumed that people go to church. At least when my dad was a pastor, 
people were still going to church on Sundays because that's what we did. Mm -hmm. And none of that is true anymore. And then denominational affiliations, no one cares much about denominationalism anymore. And so you don't have the typical faithfulness where people would say, well, this was the denomination I was raised in, so this is where I'm going to be, this is where I'm going to stay. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of consumeristic approach that people have to church now where they shop for a church like they shop for a car, and the pastor knows that they're a part of whether or not someone stays, and if your church has all the right programming or not. Everybody's looking for the best thing for their kids. I mean, there is a lot of stress on pastors today, and the demands are different than what I remember when my dad was a pastor and I was being raised in his home. I was wondering if there's a word of encouragement that you would offer to pastors today. Well, I think, I think one of the dangers of pastoral ministry is thinking you have to do all this yourself. And of course, congregation is going to say, go to it. And I, we, we need to learn how to equip, as Paul says, equip the saints for the work of ministry. And the pastor's primary responsibility is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not do all the work of ministry themselves. And, uh, and again, that's, that's another paradigm shift in, in the life of the church, because most people in the church, you know, well, he's the, he's the pastor. He's responsible for all these sort of things. No, he, he really isn't. He, he is your, your pastor leader, pastor teacher, as Paul says, to, to equip you for the work of ministry. So, you know, pastors, I mean, that, that's a pretty big task by itself. Because, and part of it is being able to relinquish control and, and trusting members of the church to fulfill their ministry. And to you know, equip them to fulfill that ministry, and, and of course there are times when you have to call people up short because they're not fulfilling the ministry or they're not you know fulfilling it in the way in which it should be fulfilled. So that that of course I think would be pastoral responsibility as well. Although certainly you know, in larger churches can be responsibility of a you know sort of a supervisory council of some sort. Um, so I, I think I think pastors basically have tended to bring this upon themselves and uh, you know by allowing the people to see them as as the person that does everything well I was what raised Plymouth Brethren and maybe you're familiar with Plymouth Brethren mm -hmm. and one of the emphases in the Plymouth Brethren was the priesthood of all believers so there was no ordained clergy you know when I was being mm -hmm. uh, raised in a pastor's home he was really an itinerant pastor and preacher and he was a full-time worker but we did not have ordinate ordained mm -hmm. clergy and so the priesthood of all believers, I think, is also something that's gotten lost in the professionalism of the church and the pastoral calling. Um, mm -hmm. And so we see it as a profession rather than as something that's shared among all members. And mm -hmm. so I think that's a, a wonderful corrective, which I hope we can take into our hearts, is to somehow return to equipping the saints for ministry and also the priesthood of all believers that, that we're all responsible for the work mm -hmm. of the church and, and what goes mm -hmm. on there. Mm -hmm. Is there a challenge? Is there, although actually there's a challenge contained in what you just said, the challenge to see oneself as a pastor, as, as someone who's equipping others for ministry. That would be quite the paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. Is there any other challenge that you might want to put out there for pastors and Christian leaders today? I think that's the basic one. Mm -hmm. uh, just a, an anecdotal response here. Uh, the little church I'm serving now, you know, average attendance of 17. Uh, <laughs> and uh, well, when the previous pastor was a tent-making pastor, and uh, he had an MDiv, but he had his own printing business, and tour business and stuff. Well, when, when he decided, uh, well, actually, I should, should say when his wife decided to move elsewhere, he decided he better go with her. <laughs> um, we, met, we met with them. And uh, in his perspective, one of the major problems in this church is that the people wouldn't take any responsibility. So we went in and, and uh, just, we, we knew the people. We've been there you know, 40 years. We've sort of grown old together in this church. Um, and we, we knew that these were good people that could take responsibility. So we just put it in their hands. And my goodness, they just jumped in and you know, do it all. The problem with the pastor is that he was doing it all. And, you know, if you're going to do it all, okay, if, you, if that's the way it's going to be, see it. it was his way or the highway. You know, if that's the way it's going to be, then go to it. You know, we'll just sit back here and we'll be here, pew fillers on, on Sunday. 
That's it. So you think that many pastors bring it on themselves, and I would agree with that. I think so, yeah. That we don't trust the laity, if you will. We don't Mm -hmm. trust people to be able to step into those roles and to carry them out with excellence and effectiveness. You know, depending on on how how much our religious false self is not yet being confronted, that can be a threat. Yeah. You see, that I'm not in control. This, this person is doing something over here. So, you know, I think by and large, pastors bring it on themselves. And that point about the religious false self, that is something that's very striking in your book, The Deeper Journey. You talk about the fact that the most dangerous aspect of the false self, the most dangerous kind of mm-hmm. false self is the religious false self. Mm-hmm. And certainly for those of us who have been in ministry all of our lives and have been in the Christian, in and around the Christian world, all of our lives, that religious false self would be very well developed, probably among clergy in particular. Mm-hmm. Can you speak about the religious false self and how we can recognize that and um, move beyond it? Well, I mean, to recognize it is is to to see that persons, whether it's pastors or, or members of the church, uh, see their their position or their role as. Uh, absolutely crucial that if you know they put their hand in a bucket of water and pull it out there's gonna be a hole there um so a- awakening to to the you know the religious false self is very important and of course the, the essence of the, the religious false self is that it has brought god into its orbit but on its terms not god's terms and um, you know i think to ask both at the pastoral level and at the congregational level you know who's in control of your relationship with god to keep raising that question. And the sobering reality is that we can use anything, including spiritual practices and spiritual language and spiritual disciplines, to shore up the false self. That just yeah. because we're practicing the disciplines doesn't mean that we're actually transforming in, in the false self part of who we are. We can actually be using those things to shore up mm-hmm. the false self, mm-hmm. which is very, very sobering. Yeah. Yeah, you just build this holy facade uh, with nothing really behind it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a that's a very important point that you brought out in a really effective way that we need to watch out for the religious false self and for those of us who are on a more intentional deeper spiritual journey we still must watch for the temptation the seduction actually of the false self taking all of this and just using it to shore up that which is false within us anyway yeah. which is a very sobering reality. Mm-hmm. It is. Well, the last thing I'd like to ask you about is to talk about your current journey which includes your struggle with cancer. And wondering if uh, you would tell me a little bit about that and how you're experiencing God in the midst of that journey and how you're experiencing the journey of transformation to be taking place right there in a very serious struggle with a health mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I guess it, it has not been um, as difficult as most people would think to, to come to grips with, you know, stage four cancer. Um, and I think because by God's grace, I've come to the point of relying upon God, that God is really in control. And, uh, and so my, my prayer, well, I've, I've sort of had two prayers. I know there's hundreds, maybe thousands of people praying for me. And uh, so one of my prayers is that their prayer for me will be a means of God's grace in their own spiritual journey. That it will nurture them. And then my second prayer is, is that God will be glorified in all of this, whatever. So, you know, it, uh, and the, <laughs> the doctors at the, at the center and when I was in the hospital too, you know, they would come into to my room with these long faces, you know, another, another bad news story today. And, uh, and we, you know, we would, okay, you know, God's in control of this too. And we would talk with them and they, they would, they would stick around our room and when they left, they were smiling and laughing and, you know, just because usually I think when they go in with something like that, you know, they find people that just fall apart in front of them and they really don't know what to do with that. <laughs> so I think it was really enriching for them to, to understand how the Christian faith works. One of the questions that often comes up for people who are struggling with an illness like this, something that's life altering, an illness mm-hmm. is life altering. The question is, how do I fight for life? and enter into treatments and do everything that can be done. How do I know when I'm supposed to do that or when I'm supposed to just release myself to God and relinquish mm-hmm. myself to God? What is the balance between uh, 
fighting the illness and mm -hmm. doing what you can, but also living in some sort of acceptance mm -hmm. of, of God's will in your life and what God is unfolding in your life. Yeah. Um, and and that, that's a tricky balance, I think. Uh, my, my perception is, is that the medical profession can be a means of God's healing grace. There, there are those who would say, well, you just need to pray and God's going to heal you. Well, maybe. But maybe God is going to use, you know, my oncologist, his nurses, what have you, as a means of that healing. I know that all healing comes from God. They're, they're not healing me. You know, they're, they're just being a means of God's grace to provide the kind of structure and support through which God will be able to heal me if, if God chooses to. And, and I think another, another uh, problem a lot of people have is that God has to heal me. And no, he doesn't. He doesn't. And uh, I think to, to realize that and to just rest in God's care is the only way to do, deal with this. Otherwise, you're going to drive yourself nuts and everybody around you, you know, with trying to fight this. It's an extraordinary opportunity to go down deep into one's soul and discover whether or not I really trust God with my whole self or not. Mm -hmm. yeah. The kind of experience that um, many of us don't have, mm -hmm. but to be forced to consider whether or not I really trust God with my whole self and with my whole being, mm -hmm. even in this. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. to do what I can, but then in the very deepest places to say, I do trust God with the outcome of my life. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure that it brings you face to face with that in a different way mm -hmm. than if this sort of experience wasn't a part mm -hmm. of what was going on. Because right it keeps now. your focus on God, not right. on the condition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's You're been inspiring. Welcome. Thanks mm -hmm. for being willing to dig a little deeper into some of the teachings that you brought to us all. We're all very grateful for the work that you've done. And also, thank you for being our teacher. Thanks for being my teacher. Um, I'm most grateful for the work of putting your thoughts in writing and then being with us in person and being so generous, you and Lynn both. So thank you so very much. Well, it's, it's a privilege for us as well. We always look forward to our time with this transforming center. Thank you and bless you. On behalf of Ruth and the entire Transforming Center staff, thank you so much for listening. We're currently accepting applications for our next Transforming Community Spiritual Formation Experience for Christian Leaders. You can learn more by visiting transformingcenter.org slash TC. This podcast is a ministry of the Transforming Center and is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. If you've enjoyed Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast, please leave us a review and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can also become a partner of the podcast and get exclusive benefits by visiting transformingcenter.org slash patron. Thanks so much for your support and for listening to Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership.